But wanted to finish up, wanted to go ahead and give you the vision, but wanted to finish up this series and the two coincide, and here's how. The, visions, the, 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 the series has been called Cultivate. We've been going through the Beatitudes, cultivating the garden of our souls with these eight statements, true statements by Jesus, referring to them in one sense as eight um, saplings that we plant, that we continue to cultivate over time that will end up bearing fruit. And today we're gonna to talk about the fruit that's born from these, but let me review. If you've not been here, there's a great time to come. You, if you're one of the people that like cliff notes, here it is. We're gonna give you the cliff notes to the Beatitudes. The context is Jesus at the end of Matthew announcing his public ministry, going about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. To, the kingdom is not a place, it's, this, it's, the, it's the realm of Christ's rule. Two people can be in the same room, one person be in the kingdom, another person be out of the kingdom. The kingdom of God was synonymous with all creation before the fall. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, they died, even though they continued to exist. They continued to be images of him, but they were dead in their trespasses and sin, muted to the full expression of their humanity. To be fully alive is not self-improvement, it's not self-help, it's to be restored in the original purpose we're made for, which is to be in his kingdom, to be under his rule. And we're in this process of him redeeming and restoring all things, when that process is complete, we're told in Revelation, the kingdom of this world will have become once again the kingdom of our God. Jesus came to inaugurate that kingdom, to pay the price for our sin on the cross and to usher us into a new life. And it's good news. We think to be under God's rule is not suffocating, but liberating. And his first recorded sermon that Matthew records, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the Beatitudes. These eight statements are cumulative, meaning you don't pass through one to get to the next and have nothing to do with the first one anymore. You take, take that first one along and then you jo join it with the, the second. And then you take the first two and join it with the third. You take the first three and then join them with the fourth. I loved hearing those statements at the beginning in, in different languages, didn't you? So if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, go to the uh, welcome desk afterwards and we'll give you a Bible as our gift. So what you're about to see is Jesus unpacking what it means basically to enter the kingdom. Now he put this in another way in John chapter three, verse three, by the way. I'm coming back to Matthew 5, 1. But John 3, 3, he says, you're not gonna be able to participate, see, enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, unless you come to life. People say, I thought I was already alive. I'm alive physically, but I need to be born again in terms of my relationship with him. So that new birth will involve a process. Let's look, Matthew chapter five, verse one. Jesus went up on a hillside, a mountainside, and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, so here we go, rapid fire. He starts with blessed. It's a word that shocked him right from the get-go. The word's makarios, it's a happiness. It's, it's up to that point, people only thought Greek gods and goddesses could be makarios. Because it's a happiness that transcends human circumstances. It's deep, it's substantive. Jesus is saying, no, being born again into the kingdom, becoming un under the rule of God enables makarios. It starts by me saying, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I'm owning up to my poverty of spirit for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. We're all poor in spirit. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. It's only those who admit they're dead, admit they're poor, that can be helped. 
God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So it begins with poverty of spirit, humility, moves into me mourning my poverty of spirit and being comforted. In the upper room discourse, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the comforter. So the Holy Spirit takes up residence in me, makes me alive. The Holy Spirit's purpose, Jesus teaches that St. Patrick's, is to give life. The prophecies in Ezekiel about the valley of dry bones and the Son of Man speaking into that valley of dead humanity, breathing into them His Ruach, His Spirit, coming alive is a picture of what the gospel does. And then those communities of people gather, yes, in buildings, but they gather as communities to move out and give life, has everything to do with His Spirit's presence. So the Spirit comes in comforts. Now the Spirit is abiding within every person here who's a follower of Jesus. Then I've got a role, a very specific one, that's to be meek. Meekness is not weakness. It's the word there is a word that refers to power under control. Me being, bring the potential of my humanity underneath the leadership, the kingly leadership of God, who's going to direct me back into the original purpose that I'm made for. And it's those people that inherit the earth. It's those people that will experience the kingdom of, our, the kingdom of this world once again becoming the kingdom of our God. Those people will be inhabiting heaven. Not by their own merit, but because of the grace of God. What Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, we saw, it's by His grace that we're made alive. But then we begin to hunger and thirst, direct our hunger and thirst to righteousness. Every human being hungers and thirsts. And every human being actually hungers and thirsts for rightness with God. They just don't realize it. When I direct my hunger and thirst toward rightness, that's when I'm filled. And then I engage with being merciful. In other words, what God is pouring into me, His mercy, His grace, uh, my, uh, all my resources, my finances, my blessings, my time, I give to others. And when I'm giving to others, it shows that I'm fully in embracing my gifts as coming from God. And then be pure in heart, single-minded, clean, yes, but single-minded, unmixed in my devotion to be able to see God. So we, a powerful thing that happens when together is that we help each, other, each other's vision to be able to say, what is reality? What does it look like? How does God see this? And then being, bearing our family resemblance as children of God by being peacemakers. And it's heartbreaking that in so many of these places, there's anything but peacemaking. And then as we continue to to follow him, we're crowned with persecution. Jesus blessed are those who are persecuted. Because if you're swimming upstream in a downstream world, it's not going to sit well with a lot of people. It will some, but not all. Blessed are those who persecute because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We looked at this passage last week. Now I want you to go to verse 13. Here's the fruit of this garden that we're cultivating. Jesus brings up two characteristics of our impact on other people. A friend of mine likes to say that the gospel is about the, the, the statement, you before me. It's said twice. The first time is by Jesus to us. So when Jesus comes to you, when I first, when you began to engage with him, he says, you before me. He came and said, 
I, I left my throne in order to accomplish what I wanted you before me. And then what's the call on my life from then on? To tell everyone else, you before me. Churches without doors, they say me before you. And it's actually good they have no doors because there's all sorts of fights going on in here and yucky stuff that you wouldn't want to be a part of. It's not kingdom stuff. But a thriving, throbbing, flourishing, life-giving community is looking to one another, engaging with one another, saying, you before me in servanthood. They've responded to Jesus' offer of you before me. Now they're telling one another, you before me. And then they move out to the people around, the Vincents, and say, you before me. Jesus says, cultivate these eight postures of a garden. And once you do, this is going to be the result. You're going to be involved with others in two ways. You're going to be gifts to your surrounding world in the form of salt, in the form of light. Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, as you're starting to get the gospel, if you're really getting it, you're going to have a you-before-me posture. The doors are going to be open, and you're inviting people in, and you're going out after them as well, as salt and as light. In light of our, our vision, I was just thinking through, okay, God, you obviously knew this was coming when we planned this particular weekend long ago, and realizing at the time didn't know this would be the weekend, be announcing the vision. And then all of a sudden, boom, it hit me. Salt and light, I'm thinking, what is the commonality that the two have? There's, there's several smaller ones. The biggest one is that they're both necessary for life. Let's look at them one at a time. First, salt. You're saying salt's necessary for light? In our culture, we just think salt's what's on the shaker and it is optional. My first engagement with Northland was back in the mid-90s. I was in seminary at, at Reform Seminary, and I was helping start a ministry called the Great Orlando Leadership Foundation, and I spoke at a men's event here, met Vernon and others, and uh, about that time, our, our son Joel was born. Arlene took him in for a two-month checkup. She called me, her voice was shaking, and she said, meet us down at Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital right now. I said, what's wrong? She says, we don't have time to explain. Uh, they, the doctor didn't even want to wait for an ambulance. He's following me down there. She was, her voice was breaking as she was saying it. So I met them down at Arnold Palmer's Children's Hospital, and about half dozen, seven or eight doctors were there along with that. I mean, it was 
because everybody was wondering what was, what was wrong. This is before the internet was a big thing and uh, trying to figure out these symptoms. And the doctor said, we, we're not sure of the diagnosis, but uh, we do know some of what's wrong. We just don't know completely, but we're just, our, our goal right now is to enable your son to get through the night, just to make it through the night. We found out later adults at his levels usually are, are dead, adults. He stabilized and then about the second day, they finally had all these medical books out, finally diagnosed it. I'll never forget it. Transient pseudo hypoaldosteronism. You're saying, what's that? There's a lot to that. But fundamentally, one of the primary things that was wrong with my son is that he did not have enough salt. Salt's more than decorative on a table. It's necessary for life. Jesus says, when you guys start cultivating a life-giving garden, then I want you to open the doors, keep them open, just get rid of the doors, let people in, invite people, go out as salt. What will that look like? I'll give you a several characteristics real quick. Salt, what does salt do? Back in Jesus' day, it was a preservative. There's no refrigeration. So salt was a preservative. Therefore, salt uh, deters decay. Our culture and world is decaying. Any here want to object to that? That's what we're told. From the fall, it is continuing, and it's, as Paul writes to the Romans, and it's bondage to decay until the glorious restoration of the children of God on that day. In the meantime, decay happens, and we are here to help deter it. And that doesn't mean being angry, uh, yelling at people in hypocritical ways. It means, yes, being passionate for the things that God cares about, and healing brokenness, and, and invading pockets of darkness, and bringing light, and bringing life. So salt deters the darkness. It also fills the void. Anybody here ever had potato chips without salt? No, because it'd be a waste of time, all right? That's the whole reason you do the potato chips to get to the salt. Salt spices things up. We're told in Colossians to speak to, to, other, to outsiders with your word seasoned as salt. Salt fills a void in food. He's saying go out as salt, fill the void. There is an aspect of this group of men and women that have been brought to life that should be able to, be, that you, you should bring something to a community and a culture that it does not have. And so often what that is is something other than what we would want. It's, it's religiosity and it's hypocrisy and it's backbiting. Oliver Wendell Holmes served 30 years on the Supreme Court. Was, he was asked in an interview one time if he had ever considered any other vocation. He said, actually, as a matter of fact, I, I might have even entered, I, I would consider being a pastor. They said, really? He says, yeah, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen and pastors I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. He said, I wanted nothing of it. They weren't salt. A guy named Baxter Kruger has written about this, his journey into this, the, the great dance of the gospel. And 
He's writing about as a young man the religious people that he observed, the highly committed religious types that he referred to them as. He said, they walked more closely with God than the rest of us, I assumed. At least they certainly appeared to do so. As far as I could tell, they were good people and honorable, but they were about as interesting as a fence post. The highly committed religious types always struck me as being a shade or two on the nerdy side and heavily into religion because they could not do anything else. And the force of the threshold was obviously with them. I love this. The force of the threshold, what's that mean? He says their presence alone could change people. Their presence, when they walked through the threshold, could shut down laughter and stifle the best of parties. Whatever the highly committed religious types were, it was very clear to me that they did not have much of that invisible river of the gospel about them. May we be distinct from our culture, but distinct from the right reasons. And do you think Jesus was distinct? Absolutely. But he was magnetic. He was fully human to the glory of God. Are we filling a void in our culture of human beings that are doing what we're meant to do? Christianity over the years, over the centuries, has done great things on those lines. May we continue. Let me give you a third, a third aspect of salt. It amplifies thirst. Anybody here eat a potato chip? What do you want after a potato chip? The soft drink people have this all figured out. Salt makes you thirsty. Vincent van Gogh, his thirst was not amplified by looking at the religious crowd. We're to be wells of living waters originating within us. But as people look at our lives, see, everybody is thirsty for God. We all have eternity in our hearts. Every human being does. And when people encounter life-giving communities of Christ followers, they should say, man, I, I think that's what I'm thirsty for. Salt's life-giving, but so is light. So as salt, we deter decay. As salt, we fill the void. As salt, we amplify the, uh, uh, the thirst of the people around us. Light is also life-giving. When I was in the 10th grade, I did my first major research paper. It was on December the 17th. People don't believe that I remember the date. I do remember the date. The reason I remember the date is my brother and his now wife were getting married on Sunday, December the 16th. And I was so consumed with December the 17th that when I was painting their car for their getaway to their honeymoon, you know, uh, and, they, and there was a perfect photograph, you know, they took them, they're getting in, they're all happy, and in between is my paint on the, 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 the window behind them with the date, and it was the wrong date. It was the date of my research paper, not the date of their wedding. It said December 17th behind them. Uh, my sister-in-law is still not letting me forgive this. She says, yeah, it's a great picture, except it doesn't have the right date for our wedding on it. I don't remember everything about that paper, but I do remember this. It was on photosynthesis. And do you know what I gathered of anything from photosynthesis? Light and life go together. And you're not going to have life without light. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. What does light do? It leads the way. Are we leading the way in terms of what it means to be fully human to the glory of God? pursuing His purposes. What does it mean to live a full life to the glory of God? Are we leading the way? I was climbing a 14er in Colorado. 
uh, this 14,000 foot peak. And you have to start when you do that at like three in the morning. It's dark your first couple hours or with a headlamp because you want to get up summit and get back before midday when the thunderstorms can roll in. You think thunderstorms are bad in Florida at sea level, try getting 14,000 feet closer to the lightning. It's dangerous. So you want to start early. One time I was climbing one alone. I got to the trailhead, and there were three guys there in tennis shoes. They weren't well equipped. I could tell right away, and they were kind of waiting. I struck up a conversation. They liked my headlamp. And, uh, and then it caused them to say, yeah, the reason we're still here, we got, we t- we're told we need to get here early, but nobody brought a lamp. They didn't have any light. So they're having to wait to begin their journey until they had enough light. May we be a community of people who say, you want light? Here's light. Here you go. And it's not our light, it's the light of the gospel. The light of the one who says he's the light of the world. As light, we lead the way. As light, we reveal the truth. By our lifestyle, we're told that it exposes deeds of darkness just by walking. Not in a prideful, hypocritical, or judgmental way, but in a way that's humble towards God and loving towards others, but revealing about what does it look like not to be perfect, that's not going to happen this side of heaven, but to be filled with grace and truth. And light also, thirdly, brings life. It doesn't just lead the way and it doesn't just reveal truth, it brings life. If I were to interview Vincent, and say, Vincent, is the church life-giving? You and I both know what he would say. And there are plenty of other people that would say the same thing in our culture today. Not referring to, hey, overlooking uh, uh, sin and and downplaying truth and self-help. No, we're talking about the life of Jesus. That's a good thing. It's the fruit that gardens produce. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's pretty cool to be men and women who've partaken of the gospel. But I don't think any of us realize just how cool. And I pray that we're starting a journey right now that we are going to be unpacking the gospel more and more in days to come, realizing things that we never had before. It's not just about intellectual understanding of doctrine and orthodoxy, but it's about experiential engagement with the vibrancy of the gospel, a vibrancy that that opens up the doors and invites people in and sends us out, distributed all over the world. That's the heritage of North and may it continue to be. And as we embark on this time, may we praise you from whom all blessings flow. I ask this in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life, amen and amen. Before we leave here, we're going to make a proclamation together. I want you to stand. We have been having these art moments during the series. Art slows us down. It's language of the heart. I want to encourage you. Don't just gather your stuff and say, all right, I'm done. Let the Holy Spirit solidify whatever He has impressed upon you. Now, 
These art moments have been happening throughout the series. We'll give you a video replay of them, highlight reel. And last week, we haven't been singing the doxology. Last week, we did a rehearsal a cappella. Now we're going to uncork it. You ready to uncork it? Okay, passivity ends now. This is a great way to do it. I don't care if you're in tune or not. Let's sing, let's proclaim it together. <laughs> 